what I like to do, and frankly, what I've seen the leaders who I think are the most successful do, is to really carve out the time to talk one-on-one to people, and then honestly shut your mouth and listen. I mean, as a podcaster, I'm sure you know this, silence is a gift. If you sit back and you're quiet and you really listen and you ask questions, people tell you things. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. You have been described to me as the Beyonce of CMOs. What do you make of that? (laughs) (laughs) It's really sweet. I only wish. (laughs) That's a hell of an illustrious title. I don't know that I earned that, but nonetheless, that's that's a lot of fun. I love it. I'd love to live up to that. (laughs) Well, good. Hey, I want to kick things off with a similar way that I generally kick off most of these things, which is I will read my guests' backgrounds back to them and then tell me where we need to adjust and we can go from there. Cool? Sounds great. Okay. You went to Union College and got your BA in Poli-Sci and Psychology, then On your LinkedIn, there's a 21-year gap, which we're going to explore here. And in August of 2000, you started at Citibank as the Director of Marketing Communications. You spent about three years there. Then you went to GE, first as the Global Director of Marketing Comms, then as the Executive Director of Global Digital Marketing. And then as of September of 2015, you became the CMO of all of GE, right? Sounds right. Okay. And then you were also the president of the GE Foundation, and you sit on the board of Duncan Brands. I used to. We took Duncan private about two and a half years ago. I was on the board, and we got a tremendous offer, and we sold Duncan to a company called Inspire. But I was on the Duncan board. What other entities are within the Duncan? Duncan is Duncan Donuts and Baskin Robbins. So a couple of fantastic, fantastic food franchisees. And I love doing that. I also lead learning and culture here at GE and I co-lead our women's network. So if you want any, if you want any other topics to throw around and have some fun with, but I'm going to go wherever you go. My prep for this was kind of the non-prep prep. For the team at GE, that must freak you all out as marketers, as communications people to walk into this thing with Juven having no idea what's going to come at you. That must be so scary. I got to imagine. It was so refreshing. <laughs> it was so refreshing. I'd so much rather just talk. Linda, can I start with a name, Robert Cohen? Can you tell me who Robert Cohen is and what did he mean to you as you were starting your career out? That's a beautiful first question. So I graduated college a little bit early. I left a trimester early. So I started in the workforce in March instead of in June. Kind of crazy, but I wanted to work. I liked school, but I was really motivated to be in the workforce. And I grew up with two amazing parents still alive this day who were not in the business world. My dad's a physician. My mom stayed at home with us for a while and then became a librarian. So 
honestly, Jubin, I didn't know anything about the business world per se. I went to a liberal arts school. As you say, I studied political science and psychology. I didn't study economics. I didn't have an MBA. My dad had a patient named Robert Cohen. Robert had started a company called Video Monitoring Systems, VMS. I think for folks who are listening, this is going to sound like I'm actually describing the dinosaurs. But once (laughs) upon a time, when you were in PR or communications and your client appeared on Good Morning America or the Today Show, you would immediately call a company like Video Monitoring Service, VMS, and you'd get a tape so that you could watch this and send it to your client. Now, again, that has to sound as though I'm describing fire when it was first (laughs) formed, but that was a very real thing. Anyway, Robert took it upon himself to help me get some footholds. And when I say he took it upon himself, he didn't make a couple phone calls. He didn't send a few notes. He called, he gave me lists, he gave me advice. He put his heart into this for no reason beyond, I think, grace, generosity, kindness, seeing a young person who truly had no idea whatsoever how to go about this. And it was thanks to him that I landed my first job at a small public relations firm called Michael Klepper Associates. And I don't know that I've ever paid him back. I became a client of VMS, but the way I've tried to pay back is to pay it forward. And so I like to go out of my way when I can to help folks who are really early in their career, who are trying to figure out how to get on first base and don't either have a lot of contacts or didn't grow up in a situation where they had a real roadmap. And so Robert means a lot to me because he was a Sherpa at a time where I just didn't really know what I was doing. This notion of you wanting to work at a young age, where did that come from? Did you see your folks working? Where did this inspiration to work come from? I think it came from my dad. I mentioned my dad was a physician. What I didn't mention is my dad was a physician until he was 82. And when he retired, he still continued to work at a clinic so that he could continue to doctor. I grew up with a father who knew he wanted to be a doctor since he was six years old. His dad was kind of a country doctor, and he knew that was his destiny. And he would get up really early in the morning. I was the only one up in the house. I have three sisters, all of whom are night birds. I'm an early bird. He'd be really focused on whatever it was he had to do that day, reading the newspaper, et cetera. But we would get a little time to talk then. And Jubin, you know, the prevailing thought he gave me, and I think it came from his own passion for being a doctor, was figure out something you love to do. It's not about the money. It's not about climbing the ladder. Find something that you love, and then every day will feel like a joy. It won't feel like work. Every day doesn't always feel like a joy, but many, many days feel like I'm doing something I chose to do, and I feel so lucky for that. So getting back to your question, why leave college early to do it? I think I just had this 
passion to figure out what my thing would be. I saw his thing. His thing wasn't my thing. Four girls, one doctor, one artist, one teacher, one me, (laughs) business person. But I wanted to figure it out and I wanted to get after it. Yeah. You're not kidding about wanting to figure it out. Somewhere along the way, again, not mentioned on your LinkedIn, you did like eight internships before and after college until you figured it out? I did so many internships, and I guess maybe that was a harbinger to realizing how much I like to work, but I went to a wonderful college, Union College, small liberal arts, Schenectady, New York, and it was the kind of experience, and I dearly hope people get this experience. I think it's a luxury. I think liberal arts schools can be a luxury. I think getting to do what I did is a bit of a luxury these days, but I explored so many things. I was a radio disc jockey. I was a photographer on our school newspaper. I played lacrosse with no skill whatsoever. But I also wanted to figure out what the working world looked like. I don't even know if I could have articulated that then, but the classes at Union were about learning how to learn in so many ways, right? Versus the practice of marketing, let's say. So I sought out opportunities. I worked at a radio station in Albany as an intern. I worked at a hospital in Schenectady as an intern. I worked in DC at a not-for-profit. So I said yes to a lot of those things. And, you know, to me, internships are a great way to figure out what you want and what you don't want. I'll tell you, maybe in another world on another day, you could have been a pretty good podcast host. It feels like you're preparing yourself for that. I love radio. (laughs) Loved it then, love it now. But you're going to do the podcasting work. You're the real pro here. I'll be the host. I can't help myself. I have one more super random question for you, which is, were you in Lake Placid for the USA hockey game? Were you there for that? I was. Can you give the backdrop? The Winter Olympics were in Lake Placid, New York in 1980. I have always liked sports. It's a big part of who I am and how I grew up as a fan more than as an athlete. I wish it was more as an athlete, but more as a fan. So I have a love for sports, but this had nothing to do with that. I was dating a guy. How many sentences can you start with that? I was dating a guy and his sister was in charge of athlete housing at the Lake Placid Olympics. And my boyfriend at the time said, hey, let's drive up. I was in, as I said, the Albany area. So, you know, that part of the country. My sister can get us tickets to some games. We were college kids. You know, we didn't have $5 to rub together. So we drove up to Lake Placid and his sister got us tickets to some amazing events, one of which was the gold medal game that the U.S. won in what has been memorialized in movies and the rest of it. It wasn't the game against Russia. It was the following game, but it was exhilarating, Jubin. Here we are uh, talking in the midst of election fall. And to think back on that moment, it was one of the proudest moments that I can remember to be an American. Your cup was just running over with patriotism. I couldn't help myself. And speaking of being American, and I don't mean to offend your marketing prowess here, but am I the only person that doesn't know that Thomas Edison invented GE 128 years ago? I felt stupid 
not putting those dots together until I started researching you and GE. Am I just young? <laughs> Does everybody else know that? Well, I don't think many people were around 130 years ago. Right. So I think there's some, there, you attribute some of it to youth. Thomas Edison is one of the founders, certainly the most famous one of GE. In fact, in so many ways, even though it has been a very, very, very long time, I think some of the spirit at GE is this idea that we are the sons and daughters of Edison. There's this ethos of trying and trying. And I think Edison famously said, I didn't fail. I tried a thousand different ways, right? So this idea of we can do better. We just have to keep going and keep sort of finding a new way in is very, very true to GE to this day. So, well, you learned something. I did. I have another random question. Actually, I think this whole thing is just going to be me asking you random questions. So brace yourself. But it's all good. What do you make of this Twitter stuff happening right now? The reason that I ask is because a lot of big marquee brands are backing out. And if this is a touchy subject that you don't feel like touching, that's okay. But a lot of big brands today, which is November 9th, are very trepidatious about new ownership and the change that means for advertising on Twitter. Do you have a perspective on it? And are we making much ado about nothing here? You know, yes and no. So I am a very passionate Twitter user. I've been on the platform gosh, at least a decade. I've got a blue check mark. I've had one for a while. <laughs> I use Twitter myself. I'll stick with personal for a minute as my news feed. So like a lot of people, I've curated my Twitter feed and I follow people who either share my passions, deliver information, or make me laugh because you need a little bit of that in your Twitter feed. And I wake up, it's one of the very first things I check in the morning. I look at Twitter a dozen times a day. I don't spend all that long, but I'll scroll through my feed. So I have a lot of passion for the platform. I know the team there, or I should say, I know the team that has been there. I don't think many of them are there now pretty well. I think we're at an interesting point. I've been on a couple calls as many marketers have, and I think just about everybody in marketing, one of the things we're paid to do is to figure out where our brand has the best opportunity to engage our stakeholders in a way where context really matters. Safety really matters. And if you do what I do, and you've done it as long as I've done it, you spend decades, Jubin, in our case, 130 years, obviously, I haven't spent all of those building up your brand. It's almost like putting deposits in a bank and brand reputation can fall real fast. I think what I would say in terms of Twitter is we're being watchful right now. We're going to see sort of how all this plays out. Twitter has been one of the things in our marketing mix. So is LinkedIn, so has Facebook, so has Instagram. So it's not predominant, but we're listening, watching, then we'll make some good decisions. Linda, I have questions for you on GE that I'm fascinated by, meaning the world that you live in is very different than generally speaking, this tech company world that I live in. So the company in 2021 has 168,000 employees, a market cap around 92 billion today, revenue of about 74-ish billion dollars-ish. 
when you started in 2003, the revenue was $113 billion. And in my world, that is crazy. <laughs> that almost took me for a loop that, wow, in 20 years, the revenue's gone down. And you've been there getting promoted and taking on more responsibility throughout this entire time. Why this stick to Tell me why it's so important to you to be there at GE this long through a company that is not necessarily growing like it was. Yeah, such a great question. And it's so interesting with your Kleiner hat on, right? You look for the hallmarks of growth. I don't blame you. So here's what I would say, and I'll, it's a bit of an expansive question. I'll try to give you as clear an answer as possible, but maybe we just continue to talk about it a little bit. So the GE I joined in the very, very end of 03, it was really sort of almost January 1st of 2004, was a sprawling company with many, many businesses, fantastic businesses, but businesses that were in some ways disparate. We owned a television network called NBC. You've heard of that one. We owned security businesses, water businesses. We owned appliances. We owned lighting, obviously, Hallmark back to Edison. We were at that point about 40-ish percent of our revenue came from financial services. So in some ways, we were also a bank. This is GE Capital. GE Capital. So the GE of 2004, let's say circa 2004, was all of those things. It was an umbrella organization. And in some ways, it was the ultimate conglomerate owning all these different businesses, different sectors. Let's fast forward to 22, nearly 23. The GE today is an industrial powerhouse in three spaces, aerospace, aviation, healthcare, and energy. Two of those three are very industrial. The third, healthcare, is a somewhat industrial business. So we have spent a lot of time focusing the portfolio, shedding GE capital so that we could concentrate on being an industrial And in doing so, the company has gotten smaller. Obviously, market cap is smaller, number of employees are smaller, footprint, et cetera. The size of the company has never mattered to me. It's the impact that we have on the world. So why I've stayed for, gosh, 18 years is every day when I wake up, I see people around me who are working on the safest possible jet engines that will bring you up into the sky, take you where you want to go and bring you home safely. People who are committed, I mean, deeply committed to creating healthcare technology that detects breast cancer, that helps folks, doctors see inside and diagnose. And interestingly, we're talking during COP27, a company that is thinking about the energy transition in all different ways from nuclear, small nuclear reactors, to wind energy, to natural gas. And we do this at scale. And it is a humbling challenge. So on a business level, let's stick with the business level for just a minute. My commitment and the mission that we have has done nothing but become more tangible, more important, as the world so desperately needs a lot of the things I just talked about, right? We're coming off the 
worst health crisis of our lifetimes in the midst of real climate challenges, et cetera. On a personal level, it's a more interesting question in some ways, because there are times where I have said, I don't know if I've ever said it on a podcast, that it would have been easier to leave than to stay, because that is a lot of change. I've worked for three CEOs. I have taken on, as you nicely said in the beginning, some responsibilities that are not necessarily within the scope of my craft, which is marketing. And I've learned as I've gone. And I have, on a personal level, an enormous commitment to the team of people that I work with. I work with the best team in the whole world, have each other's backs, laugh, celebrate, work really, really, really hard, but kind of have a sense of humor, a sense of scale, a sense of impact in doing it. And I know how rare that is. I really do. Like, you know how you can sit in a moment and say, this is really good. So that's a piece of it. And I'd say the other is, again, this is on a personal level. We've had challenges. I don't want to leave until we're on the winning side of the field. And we announced a year ago today, a year ago, November 9th, that we're going to separate into three public companies, standalone, investment grade, public companies. First one will launch in early January, our healthcare company, GE Healthcare. I want to see this company through those incredible kind of, not final changes, but what for me, I think will be the birth of three GEs where there was once one. You made a comment, easier to leave than to stay. I want to double click on that. What do you mean? I think when things are challenging for anybody, any leader, doesn't matter the circumstance, I think you start to look around and it can be tempting to say, you know, there's probably an easier way to do this. There's probably a place that is simpler. As we've talked about, I have several different hats. Maybe there's a place where I can just be doing one of those things. I genuinely think and hope and believe that when I sort of exit GE, I'll do it with this sense of hard but worth it. I like to work hard. To me, there's like a glory in hard work. And I want to see it stitched together. And in this great place, our team deserves it. Our CEO, Larry Kolb, who's an incredible CEO, deserves it. And our chair owners deserve it. I sort of want to be there to play till the end, play to the whistle. Yeah, that makes sense to me. During that time, I want to keep exploring this time. The reason I'm so curious about this is nobody in my world does this. Everybody in my world wants to say they do this. The name of the show is Grit. And the way that I define grit is passion plus perseverance sustained over a long period of time. And I think that people, generally speaking, over-index on perseverance. And I think that the trick that you figured out is that you really give a shit about this place. And that has enabled you to endure over a period of time that I think most are unwilling or incapable of doing. And so I am really interested in this idea of you being a big shot at a company that is, generally speaking, not growing in the measures that I would measure and You stick with it. You had three bosses in, what, five, six years? Yeah. At that point, what do you need to see to recommit 
to the organization? What do you need to do for yourself? What does it look like? You go home, you talk to your sisters, and you're like, wow, I got boss number three. Would you believe it? And maybe you were up for consideration to be the CEO. I don't know, but I just wonder, I just wonder, what do you do? So you said something a minute ago, which is you have to really give a shit. So I really give a shit. I care deeply for the company, what we do in the world, and the people that work here. And I think, I hope everybody feels the same way about their jobs. But Jubin, we do at GE super hard stuff. It's not easy to do what we do. There's a reason that startups don't decide that they're going to get into the jet engine business. They get into other businesses, but we have a high barrier for entry. You need people who are the best engineers in the world. You need people who are thinking about the jet engine 10 years from now. I can't do that. I'm not an engineer. I'm a marketer. But my admiration for their commitment is bottomless. So I think that, number one, I really give a shit about the company. Well, I've worked with three very, very different leaders. Each one of them has also given a shit deeply care deeply about how we operate the place for our customers, what we do for our shareholders, how we innovate. Every leader is going to be different, but to me, that passion gene, caring gene, perseverance is something I look for in others. I think that's super important, but you know, what do I say to myself? I don't need to look for reasons to believe. I believe. Maybe it's Santa Claus-like, right? You believe or you don't believe. So I believe. I believe in this company. I would have the hardest time if that went away, and it never has. I've had bad days. I've had bad weeks. I've had tough months, but I have never wavered in my belief that this company truly believes in a better way, and that's heady stuff. I'm super curious what you qualify as you love your job. How often on a given week month, year, are you excited to go to work? Is there a percentage? Like, can you quantify? Because I think people have this very weird perception of loving their job, which is an unencumbered and perennial love at all times. And whenever things go bad, it's like that old euphemism, don't quit your job on your worst day. On your best day, if you still want to quit your job, then maybe there's a there there. I love that. One of my favorite whatevers is this idea that you're never as good as you are on your best day and never as bad as you are on your worst. And in some ways, it's similar, right? Because most of us, certainly myself included, have that voice in our head, on our shoulder, and it can prop you up on a good day, and boy, it can tear you down on a bad one. So I, by nature, am an optimist. That guides me a lot. So I have an inclination to find the good. That's just who I am. I hope it's who I'll always be. And I count myself really lucky for that. Completely came from my family, whoever I can thank out there in the spiritual world. I guess I would say that percentage-wise, most of the time, what percentage do we give to most of the time? 80%? 80? 80, sometimes 90. That's high. But 80 is a good number. Like four out of five days a week. Four out of five days a week. That's 80%. You have a daughter? 
I have a daughter and a son, both in the biz. If your daughter or son came to you and you asked them this question, what percentage of time are you happy? What do you think would be the watermark that you would hear to say, leave your job? Is there a number that you think, you know what? Maybe it's 50%. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's such a good question. I love that. So I have two kids in their late 20s, and they're both on their third jobs. Do the math. A couple years in each job. In my son's case, he actually got to zero and quit a job. You know, zero is really bad. I know what zero looks like, and that's not a happy place. He reached it. There was nothing horrible. It just in his mind. You know, if you're below 50%, life's just way too short. And I actually think if you're below 70%, life's pretty short. I also say that knowing there's a little bit of privilege that goes along with that. Of course. I mean, I paid my dues and I don't know if that's a popular thing to say anymore, right? Like when I was 20 years old, working at a job at a trade show, there was nothing that was too menial, too small. And so I also, Jubin, balance a little bit the, hey, there's some things you just do because, you know, that's part of the deal. So that may be a little old-fashioned on my part. I suspect it is. How often do you reevaluate if this is the right place for you? And I think, look, at this point, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but the writing's on the wall. If I was a betting man, there's no way you're going to go work another place. Like, this is it. No, no. We're go- I'm going to see through yeah, exactly. these three spins 100%. Exactly. There's zero intent in me that could think otherwise. Do you sign up for contracts in your head? The way that I think about it is every three years. I do three-year contracts in my head where I sign up for a three-year term. And then upon three years, I reevaluate, is this still the right thing for me? Is this still the right thing for the organization? Are we growing? Am I still contributing in the way that I want to? Am I taking on more responsibility? That's how I've thought about it. Some say that's prudent. Others say that's incredibly impatient. You know, maybe for you, it's 10-year. I don't know. So I love the three-year contract idea. I'm going to steal that for people I work with, not for me in this case. So I don't know if I quite do it the way you're talking about, but here's my version of it. I try to be conscious And I'd like to believe that I do this on an annual basis. I don't think I've always done it on an annual basis of kind of giving myself permission to say, if I were starting this job anew today, what would I be doing? How would I be thinking about this? Would my goals be the same? And to me, it's a little bit different. In my case, it's how do you stay fresh when you've been someplace as long as I have been? right? 18 years is a really long time. I had never been anywhere for longer than four before this. So I try to challenge myself to, if you were starting this job, Linda, again, on January 1st, 2023, what are the things that you would be looking for? What would be your priorities? What would be your curiosities? What would you try to do? So I find that extraordinarily helpful to do that. I also think in terms of less about how would I change my whole situation and rather what are those things that I am going to take on that I've never done before and learn completely from scratch. When I took the learning part of my role four or five years ago, I'd never done that. 
literally had never done that. And in the time since then, we have rebuilt our entire learning curriculum and thanks to COVID, done a lot of it digitally. So I love the challenge yourself in the job that you're in, right? It doesn't always have to be pick up, go across the street, go across the country. It's how do you refresh and renew in what you're doing? If you were starting all over again, Linda in 03, knowing what you know now, what's one thing you would absolutely do differently? I'd have moved faster. I'd have been more impatient. And I'm pretty impatient by nature. It's my best and worst quality. Best on a good day because I'm driving things forward. Worst when I make people crazy about it. But I think if I had known in 23 the pace of change for technology, for media, I would have leaned even harder into more experimentation sooner. But be honest with me. Doesn't that pose risk? At an organization like GE, you know, I'm at a 50-year-old organization. I thought, you know, that's pretty old for around here in the Bay Area. And there are things that have been done a certain way for a very long time. And I wonder if you were more impatient earlier, if you acted with more urgency, would you have shaken trees that maybe you shouldn't have? Sometimes I do wonder that maybe you being the CMO was because you were so patient. And if you were too aggressive too early, you'd be met with resistance. You have to have context in anything you do, right? It's always about context. And it's also, you can't get ahead of your audience. I'm an audience-backed CMO, probably comes from being a partly a psychology major. I always start with behavior and what people are thinking and then how we can interact, intersect with that. I don't think of speed as reckless, I really don't. I think of it as experimentation. And maybe that's the Edisonian side of, you know, you try some things. And I think you make small bets. You don't bet the farm, right? You just say, okay, here's a portion of time slash budget to devote to the new. It was something I did early-ish as a CMO, And parts of it still remain, but I took our team, Jubin, and created three labs, a creative lab, a performance lab, and an innovation lab. And I sort of apportioned the budget and the size of those organizations where the biggest chunk at that point was in creative, then performance, and then a small slice in innovation, just so we kept our hand at trying the new. The staying fresh piece makes a lot of sense to me. There's another piece that I'm very curious about for folks like you. I asked Thomas Curian, the Google Cloud CEO, a similar version of this question, which is, are you worried about getting the truth? Are you worried about getting what is actually happening in your organization? Meaning when you're so high up in an org, it's very difficult to have enough self-awareness to always know exactly what's going on at all times. And the nature of your position is that people will pander to you. They will tell you what you want to hear just because you are on the executive team. How do you cut through that situation? Yeah, it's a great question. When this starts to happen, at first you sort of don't believe it. I don't know if he said anything like this, but you're kind of thinking, wait, it's just still me. Why aren't people just being themselves? Why aren't we just having those same conversations? And then what I've tried to do is become conscious 
of that role and A, try to put people at ease. Doesn't always work, but try to put people at ease. I'm a very informal, keep it real person. I think that helps. I don't think that's enough. I think what I like to do, and frankly, what I've seen the leaders who I think are the most successful do, is to really carve out the time to talk one-on-one to people, to gather groups of people who might not naturally come together. So it's not your whole organization. It's not your directs. It's levels down. And create a space for conversation and then honestly shut your mouth and listen. I mean, as a podcaster, I'm sure you know this, silence is a gift. If you sit back and you're quiet and you really listen and you ask questions, people tell you things. It is true. I think it's particularly true in big organizations, but small organizations aren't immune to it. I appreciate that. From your perspective, are we a little too worried what other people think? I ask you this question because your brand is everything. You don't want to be the person that that ruins it. I think it's hard to say what you want to say without saying anything. (laughs) I'm not sure how else to say that. What do you make of this? I'm not trying to stir up controversy here, by the way. No, I know you're not. I think the pendulum has swung too far, period. I just do. I say that as a person, as much as a business leader. Brands need to figure out their voice and their North Star and who they are, period. If you don't know that, if you don't know deep down what you stand for, and what your tone is, and what's important. Nothing else really matters, because then, Jubin, you're just going to swing. You're going to swing based on the political tides. You're going to swing based on what's politically correct or not correct. So I think really getting in touch with what you're comfortable with and figuring out how to speak as a human being would speak, not as like this big conglomerate, that's, to me, so critical. And it gives you a footing so that you're a little less blowing in the wind. You know, we talked about brand safety a little while ago. I go back to something I said, which is context is everything. And I think that as a brand, if you are either trying to please everybody and you wind up pleasing nobody, or you're tacking to the right or to the left or to the center or up or down, you just lose your way. I think the other thing I'm reminded of is as a global organization, and you work with so many global clients and you've had so many global leaders on your podcast, you know, what might be true in North America isn't true in India. Figuring out context within your worlds is incredibly important. I appreciate that answer. And I appreciate your honesty. I'm super curious, what does a week for Linda Boff look like? Like, what does your day look like? Like, where are the buckets of time that you are spending? What does this week look like for you? Like, how do you spend the week? What does your calendar look like? I'm fascinated. (laughs) Gosh, I honestly think calendar time management. You asked me this question earlier. If I could teach my younger self something, It would be time management in some ways. When you let your calendar own you, life sucks. It just does, right? You're on somebody else's 
time frame. You're on somebody else's list. Are you not in meetings nonstop? I'm in meetings nonstop. Again, I go back to the Thomas Curian conversation. Yeah. He was lamenting, Jubin, yes, sometimes this job is really tough. I can feel like a complete prisoner to my own calendar. So here's what I try to do. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. I There are days I am, for sure, back to back to back to back, where you don't literally have a minute to do anything. I have tried, and I would say I'm successful two or three days of the week on this, not five, to carve out early morning time for me. Now, I don't jog at that point. I don't do yoga. I don't meditate. But I take the first 90 minutes or so of the day, and I'm an early bird. So this is 6 to 7.30-ish of every day to do a few things, to think, to write, if I have something thoughtful that I need to express, hopefully it's thoughtful, to do things that are not hurry up, quick takes, or to react fast because I don't have time to do anything else. And that's pretty sacred time for me. So if I can truly get that, my whole day is different. Even when I go back to back to back to back, because I feel like I've controlled a little piece of this. Now to do that, I go to sleep early. But a lot of my week is internal meetings. A really good week. I'd rather answer that question. So what does a really good Linda week look like? is a combination of spending time with people outside the company. That was something I really prioritized before COVID. Then it fell off and I'm trying to resurrect it because that helps me as someone who's been here for as long as I have, stay fresh, think about what's happening, think about other perspectives. I try to spend a lot of time with my team. If I were to look at my calendar and percentageize the amount of time more time is spent with my team, working on projects, doing one-on-ones, planning, strategizing. I'm in them, but I hate meetings where I'm not contributing. I hate them. That to me is what feels like a waste of time when you're person number 18 on a meeting. When you write, where are you writing and what are you writing about? could be any number of different things. It could be something that I'm sending around inside the company. It could be a LinkedIn post. It could be, frankly, some thoughtful notes to people that I'm working with who I think are working hard. I think gratitude and appreciation is so critical and so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget how important it is to stop and thank people. Can you give me an example of the last time you did that? What was it? Yeah, I guess about a week ago, we had a big internal leadership broadcast, and I just stopped and wrote a note to the people who were involved. On a good day, I would call somebody and say, thank you. Thank you for the work. Because again, I think it's easy to forget how much that human touch matters. And when you think, you said you write and think in the mornings. When you think, do you do anything to cultivate thought? Or do you sit there? Or do you move? Do you walk? Do you make a coffee? Do you meditate? (laughs) Yeah, 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 How do you think? Because what I'm not doing is sitting there in bed thinking. Otherwise, I have no control. I'm gone. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. The alarm goes off at five and I'm up. I make coffee. We have a new puppy. I walk the puppy. So I'm sort of like percolating at that point. And then I sit down at the computer. 
So I'm probably at the computer within, I don't know, 45 minutes or so of waking up. I'm a very big walker, but I do a lot of that on the weekends. I'm sort of a weekend warrior when it comes to exercise. I probably read a book a week, but I love fiction. So I read a lot of new literature, new fiction while I'm walking, but a lot of that doesn't happen during the week. I feel like that's my weekend refresh. You read a book a week? I guess about, yeah. And you read while you're walking? You're listening to audiobooks? Audible. Yeah, Audible. Wow. I should literally do a commercial for Audible. I am their biggest fan. I constantly am listening to a book. I've never listened to a book. Really? As a podcaster? I know. It's either I'm reading the book or I'm listening to the podcast and there is no in between for me. That's so funny. It's almost like my aversion to wearing an Apple watch. I'm just such a traditionalist that I'm like, no, books are meant to be read. And if I want the bite-sized version of it, I'm going to listen to the podcast. I think I'm going to come around because it makes so much sense to me. But That's so interesting. To me, it's theater, right? And I love theater. And listening to a book being read is just such an enjoying experience for me. I rarely miss the hard copy. Linda, what's something that you believe that most people don't? I don't know if this is most people don't or not. I presume good intent when I work with people. I presume good intentions. Much more often than not, that comes true. And then every now and then I get sorely disappointed, but it's rare. And life is just a lot more enjoyable when I feel like, okay, we're going to do something. It's going to be good. We're going to get somewhere versus entering a conversation or a relationship or a partnership with suspicion. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What does it mean to you? To me, grit is setting your sight on something and achieving it and finding a way through. I often talk about serpentining. I think rare is the time where life or business is a straight line, but I think it's getting to that mark and finding a creative way to do it. What's serpentining? What is that? Oh, like zigzag. You might have to go to the right, to the left, but you're still going to get there. And I always ask this question, are you hiring? Are there any roles that you're looking to fill? This is an opportunity. I don't know. Maybe the answer is no. I actually don't know, but maybe it is. At GE Corporate, no, we are not because GE Corporate will go away and we'll become three businesses. But our three businesses are looking for great talent. And I would love to see some amazing marketing communications professionals, but likewise, engineers, scientists, lawyers, HR people, finance people. So we are hiring in our businesses. Linda, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time.